Our scripture reading for today comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. Hear now the reading of God's word. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One more time, bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we ask now that as we hear this word, that it would penetrate deep into our hearts. And as we utilize this imagery that you gave Jesus, that it would bear good fruit like a healthy tree. And that instead of revealing thorn bushes and and poisonous fruit, oh God, that we would spring forth like a healthy life-giving tree to bring nourishment and shade and protection to those around us. Father, would you help us to receive all that you want us to receive today, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're struggling. Lord, you know these things, and we know that you care for us. And so, God, assure us of that yet again as you speak to us in powerful, convicting, and even in unique ways to where we can leave this place healed, restored, and renewed in our commitment to you and our mission to the world of being a blessing in it. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've observed about our culture is that we live in a one that loves stories of transformation. We just love it when we witness a person, a situation, or circumstances positively changing right before our eyes. We love stories of transformation. We're inspired by them. This is why uh, shows like The Biggest Loser, shows like The Fixer Upper, you know, on HGTV are so popular. This is why companies like Weight Watchers and Beachbodies that made P90X are so financially successful. These are why books in the self-help category are one of the most profitable genres in the bookstore that you have out there today. We love stories of transformation. We are inspired by stories of change. And part of the reason, and maybe even the main reason why so many of us love stories of change is because, most likely, is that we have things in our lives or we have things about us that we so want to change. Am I right? Who of us in here cannot honestly say that there are not things happening in our life right now or things about us that we wish was different, that we wish were not as it is right now, to where we want change. None of us, right? Because we all have something in our lives or something about us that we wish were different. Maybe some of us wish we had different eyes, bigger, right? Maybe we wish we had different noses, smaller. Maybe some of us wish we had different jobs, more money, more successful, more prestigious. Maybe some of us are in a situation right now that we wish was so different than what it is right now, right? We all have things in our lives that we wish was not what it is right now. We all long for change because, as we say sometimes, change is sometimes for the better. But therein lies the question for us in today's message. Is there a change out there? Is there a kind of transformation that's not only good for you when you go through it, but also good for those around you 
who are near you to experience that change? Is there a kind of transformation out there that not only blesses you because you've undergone that change, but also because it collaterally blesses those around you who get to witness and even experience the spillover of that change that you have undergone? Now, most people will say, absolutely. Of course, there are changes like that in this world, but here's the problem. Most people do not agree what this change actually is. For some people, they say that the best kind of change that's good for not only the person but also for everyone else is political change. We just need to find that perfect political candidate who embodies that perfect political ideology, and then the world as we know it is better off. Other people will say, no, we need cultural change. We need change that will influence culture so there's more freedom, more acceptance, more rights for everybody everywhere. We need cultural change. And then other people say, no, no, we need technological change. We need to have advancements in technology where things are faster, stronger, smarter, right, to where we're able to inch closer and closer to this utopian society that technology will surely take us to. There's a wide variety of beliefs, wide variety of convictions that people say is the true type of change that is good not only for the person going through it, but for the whole world. But what say you, NCF? What kind of change do you believe is the best kind of change to where it not only blesses you as you go through it, but it blesses the world because of it? We're finally, finally finishing the sermon series that we've been on for the past few months entitled Views of a Healthy Church. And the whole point of this series was to look at crucial matters about Christian faith and of life and ask ourselves, how would a healthy church view these matters? Because the healthy church view is most likely always the right view. Okay, And today we end this series by looking at the crucial matter of change, transformation. What kind of change, what kind of transformation is not only good for the person going through it, but also good for the whole world because of it? Well, Jesus is going to tell us his opinion. And of course, Jesus' opinion is not merely an opinion, it's fact. And he would argue that it's none of the things that I just offered as possibilities. It's not political change. It's not cultural change. Nor is it technological change. No, the kind of change that Jesus is going to show us that is beneficial for you and for those around you is supernatural in character. And so as we take a look at the passage for today, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is going to share us three things as it pertains to what this change is. And we're going to look at it from three standpoints. Number one, the type of change that is the best. Number two, why it's impossible for us to make this change. And finally, how to make this change happen. The type of change that's best, why it's impossible for us to make it happen, and how to make this change happen. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the type of change that is best. Starting in verse 15, if we could have our passage up. Can we have our passage up, please? There we go. Jesus says the following, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Here, Jesus begins our passage by giving this warning to his audience about what he calls false prophets, or sometimes as translated as false teachers. You see, back in the days of the Bible, and even before then, there were many people who claimed to have spiritual authority, legitimate spiritual authority, i.e. to be a prophet of God, and yet they would not be teaching what God taught. They would not be conveying a message that God gave them. In fact, they would be teaching the exact opposite. And Jesus says that these individuals were very dangerous. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Why? 
Because instead of what a prophet should do, which is lead people to God, these false prophets were doing the exact opposite. They were leading people astray. They were further alienating people from God. They were further distancing people from the very source of meaning and life, God himself. And if you ever read the Bible, you come across many examples of these spiritual false prophets, right? Especially in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. You don't have to open a Bible to encounter a false prophet. No, all you need to do is turn on the television Sunday morning, go to this channel and that channel, and there right before you, you will see a full false prophet in full HD color teaching messages that are contrary to the word of God, claiming to be a prophet of God, when in fact they are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. This problem of false prophets is not something that was an ancient problem that is no longer relevant to us. No, false prophets are among us and that they are everywhere. Which is why when most pastors get to this passage and preach from it like I am today, the focus of their message tends to be something more like, this is how you know what a false prophet looks like. Or beware of false teachers. And they start listing out characteristics of what a false teacher is. But I'm not going to do that today. Because I want to look at it from a different standpoint. You have to know who Jesus' audience is. Jesus' audience as he's preaching this message is not only made up of people who need to be aware of false prophets, there are also embedded in this audience spiritual leaders, people who would be the equivalent of the prophet during that time. We're talking about Pharisees, we're talking about scribes, we're talking about members of the Sadducees, the member of the high council priests, right? And for them, as they're hearing this message, Jesus is giving them a warning. You with spiritual authority, beware that you do not become a false prophet. And that's the angle that I want to look at it from that standpoint. Now, immediately you're thinking, why, Pastor John? Why do you want to look at this passage from that perspective? Why from that particular audience member in Jesus' original? Why? Because first of all, I ain't a prophet, you know. This that is relevant to me. You know, I can't identify with those kinds of people in Jesus' audience. You can, Pastor, because you are a person of spiritual authority. You are standing up today at this very moment claiming to speak on behalf of God. We're not pastors like you. Why do we need to be worried about that standpoint? You do, but why should we? Now, if that is your perspective, let me clearly say right now that you are sorely, sorely wrong, and here's why. If you ever read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you would know that God uses three types of people to do his work in the world. First of all, he used prophets like Moses and Jonah. He used priests like Eli and Aaron. He used kings like David and Hezekiah. Biblical scholars call this the threefold office of spiritual leadership. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And believe it or not, these three offices still carry over into the church today. These three offices still exist among God's people. So, for example, the prophet today in the church would be what? The teaching elder, a.k.a. the pastor. Right, Because that's what the pastor does. He does the role of the prophet. He speaks the word of the Lord when he preaches his message. The equivalent of the priest today in the church would be who? The deacon. Because what is the deacon? He is the equivalent of the priest, where he would care for the needs of the church. He would care for the real legitimate financial, material, relational needs of the members of Christ's body. But then that leaves the king. Well, who is the king in the church today? That's the ruling elder or just elder as we know it. The person who is given the responsibility of governing the church, right? And making sure that it's going in the direction that it needs to go, right? The pastors, deacons, and 
elders are today the prophet, priests, and kings amongst God's people. But here's what you need to understand. They are not the only prophet, priests, and kings. There are other people in the church who are prophet, priests, and kings. And who are they? You know who they are? They're you. Prophet, priests, and kings are not just confined to the pastors, elders, and deacons. Every Christian, no matter who they are, are also prophet, priests, and kings. How do I know this? Because if you look at chapter 5 of Matthew, of Matthew's gospel, right, which is just two chapters before this passage, Jesus says that every Christian, not just pastors, not just elders or deacons, every Christian are what? Salt and light. Every Christian... Regardless if you're a pastor or not, regardless if you're an elder or deacon or not, every single one of you who claim to be a follower of Jesus, you are a prophet, priest, and king. So what does it mean practically? It means this. As pastors, deacons, and elders are the prophet, priests, and kings in the church, Christians are to be the prophet, priests, and kings in the world. One more time. As pastors, deacons, and elders are the prophet, priests, and kings in the church, Christians are to be prophet, priests, and kings in the world. Just because... You are not a pastor. Doesn't mean that you're still not responsible to read the Bible on your own, to study the word on your own, and even to share the word with those around you. Just because you're not a deacon doesn't mean that you're not responsible to care for those who are needy, to show outward compassion, to be merciful, and to be kind, and to help meet people's legitimate needs that are being neglected. Just because you're not an elder doesn't mean that you're not called to be a servant. That's the job description of an elder, by the way, to be a servant of all, servant leadership. Every Christian is called to be a prophet, priest, and king, and that means you are called, Christian, to serve and bless the world just as I, as your pastor, am called to serve and bless the people of the church. That's essentially what this massive green banner behind me is trying to communicate. And because all of this is true, you better believe that what Jesus has to say about false prophets and the warning to those who are prophets not to fall into false prophecy is not only applicable to me, they are applicable to every single one of you in this room. Every single one of us who claims to be a Christian is a prophet from God, as well as a priest, as well as a king. Let me ask you guys an honest question here. Why do so many non-Christians not like Christianity? Why do they not feel positive towards Christians? Is it only because of pastors like me who cause scandal and are living hypocritical lives and discrediting our faith? Or is it also equally so, or maybe more so, because they encounter Christians who are not pastors, they're not deacons or elders, but they see the hypocrisy, they see the inconsistency, and they say, man, Christians, they suck. (laughs) Think of it this way. If I can damage this church by being a false prophet as the pastor, you must realize that you can damage this world as a false prophet as you live in this world. Here's my point in all of this. When Jesus gives his warning about false prophets, all of us need to be listening, not just me, not just Pastor James. Every single one of us have given, been given by God the mantle of prophets. We are all called to be prophetic people. Why? Because that's the change that he did in us when he made you a follower of Jesus. When the Bible says that God changes a non-Christian to a Christian, you know what that also means? It means he changes a person from being a non-prophet to a prophet of God. 
every Christian is a prophet of God. Once you embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, you have also been called to prophesy. You've been called to tell the world who God is, what he is like. That's basically the job description of an Old Testament prophet. They were called to tell people who God is. The Bible tells us that God is good, that God is just, that God loves the poor, that he cares for the innocent. He, he remembers those who are forgotten. Well, that's the kind of God that we are to tell the world who he is. And here's the thing. You don't have to say a single word to share that revelation. If you ever read through the Old Testament prophets, you know that they didn't just talk. They didn't just use their words to tell the world who God was. They showed the world who God was by their actions, by their lifestyle, by the way they lived in every area of life, which means you too, Christian, tell the world who God is, not simply with the words that you say, but how you live your life in every aspect of life. So, for example, you tell the world who God is by the kind of job that you work, the kind of job you won't work, and how you do that job. You tell the world who God is as a prophet of God, by who you marry, who you choose not to marry, and how you treat your spouse once you are married. You tell the world about God based on how you treat people who are different from you, whether they're different ethnically, they're different racially, they're different socioeconomically, they're different in sexual orientation. You tell the world who God is as a prophet of God, Christian, by how you react to difficult circumstances or how you respond to tremendous success. When people transform into Christians, and when I say Christians, I mean genuine prophetic Christians, that change not only blesses the person who is now a prophet, it changes those around them. Because now you are a channel of revelation to those around you, where you show them the greatest source of blessing and really the greatest blessing of all, you show them God. What is the greatest change? What is the greatest transformation that's not only good for you, but good for the world? The greatest change is when people no longer live for themselves and no longer seek to exalt themselves and tell the world about themselves, but rather when they become prophets and tell the world about God and how glorious he is, how great he is. That's the best kind of change. That's the best kind of transformation. But as we'll see in just a moment, there's a problem. Because as important, as significant, and as necessary this change and transformation is to where the world needs it desperately, Jesus is going to tell us in just a moment that it's impossible for any of us to be the source of cause of change in this way. What do I mean? Let me go to my next point. Why it's impossible to make this change. When it comes to personal change or transformation of sorts, there are a wide variety of methods and ways in which people try to make that change happen. Take this pill, read this book, attend this seminar, take this procedure, have this procedure done on you, right? There's all these variety of methods and strategies and, 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 and approaches of how you have change happen in your life. But here's the thing. If you boil down all of these methods, all these strategies, all these models of how to elicit change in your life, they really have one core strategy in common, one real assumption, one real element. You know what that is? That is change happens from the outside in. If you want to change on the inside, you have to change things on the outside of you. That's how our society, that's how all these various methods, every strategy out there that promises change, that's their MO. That's how you do it. Case in point, a couple years ago, I was watching the Today Show, 
And they did a really ridiculous segment on how you can be more confident in the workplace. And you know what they said? They said, if you want to be more confident in the workplace, you have to sit a certain way. Right? You have to sit a certain way to whereby sitting in this manner, your posture will be up, causing more air to come into your lungs, keeping your chest all puffed up. Neurotransmitters will come out of your brain, causing this, this, this shift in mindset. And you know what this actual process of sitting entails? You sit down, back straight, and this is the most important part. You have to have your legs wide open as you sit. If you sit like that, you'll be more confident. This, by the way, is how they explain why, in general, most women are not as confident as men in the workplace because no decent woman would ever sit like that, right? You know, I was watching, I was like, okay, we're not watching today's show anymore. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, and yet it propagates the mindset and the modus operandi of how our world thinks about how change happens. Change happens from the outside in. You just change an external behavior. You change external stimulus of a certain environment by going to another external environment. Change happens from the outside in. And unfortunately, many people try to apply that same principle when it comes to Christian faith. They think, oh, I want to grow as a Christian, or I even want to be a Christian. What do I need to do? Well, I got to do Christian things. I need to surround myself with Christian activity. Let me go to church every Sunday. Let me read my Bible every morning. Let me go on mission trips. Let me behave in these external practices, and then maybe I can finally on the inside become how I'm behaving on the outside. This is the mindset of some Christians or some churches that teach people in their church of how you change. If you want to be a Christian, you first have to act like a Christian. Change happens from the outside in. But consider what Jesus says in verse 16 when he says this. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit fruit. Let me explain what Jesus is saying here by giving you kind of this illustration that one of my professors in seminary gave when he was preaching on this passage. He said this once in the class. Guys, imagine that you have a beautiful apple tree in your backyard. Just imagine you have an apple tree in your backyard, and this is great because you love apples. You love the taste of apples. You love the smell of apples. You love the look of apples. But lo and behold, as you go out and inspect this apple tree, you start to notice that all the apples are diseased, they're tiny, they taste disgusting, they're sour and soggy, they have brown spots everywhere, there's worms protruding out of it everywhere, right? And you're upset, and you're thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this apple tree, which I wish would make delicious, crispy apples? And so you get the idea, I know, I'm going to go to the local store, and I'm going to buy five dozen apples, the most beautiful looking apples ever, and then I'm going to come home. I'm going to take off all the ugly, diseased-looking apples, which is pretty much every, tr- every apple on the tree, and I'm going to staple all these beautiful-looking apples on every branch, every twig, so that as people walk by, they're going to say, wow, look at that beautiful, healthy tree. And so you do. And lo and behold, it does look beautiful. All your neighbors are like, whoa, neighbor, look at that tree. It's awesome. But then a week goes by. Two weeks goes by. And what do you have? You have the same disgusting-looking tree that you had. What's the point? Change does not happen through superficial external cosmetics. And that same principle applies when it comes to living the Christian life. You can fake it all you want, 
And you can put on superficial external Christian behaviors and practices. But if there's no change in here, all of that is fake. All of that is not real. And this is something many of you guys really need to get. Because maybe what I'm telling you right now, you say, I already know that, Pastor. But the way you live your life and the way that you operate tells me you don't really believe it at all. The sad reality is, folks, is that for many of us, we think that we are the way we are because of things that happen to us externally or the external environments that we grew up in or the things that we've done externally with our behavior. Case in point, let's say you've got an amazing job promotion and you're wanting to celebrate, your coworkers want to take you out, and let's say some of your coworkers are of different ethnicity from you. Maybe they're Hispanic, maybe they're black, maybe they're Middle Eastern or whatever, right, Southeast Asian. And you go out with your friends, your coworkers, and you're having a good time, but you get a little excessive, you drink too much, right? And in the midst of this drunken stupor, you yell out in anger, right, a racial slur against one of your coworkers. You sober up the next day, go back to work, and your coworker's like, I didn't know you were a racist, right? And you're like, what are you talking about? And they tell you what you did. What did most of us typically do? That wasn't me. That was the tequila talking. That wasn't me. There's a country song, by the way, called That Was the Tequila Talking. That's why I said that. But Right? Oh, that's not, that's not alcohol. That's not who I really am. Jesus would say, no, that is who you really are. You know, you can say that the alcohol made you the racist, but the reality is. The alcohol just revealed the racist that is within you, the racist that you hide so well with all this talk of equal opportunity, equal rights, diversity. Push comes to shove. What you are on the outside doesn't determine what you are on the inside, or what you do with yourself on the outside does not determine what you are on the inside. What you are on the inside determines who you become on the outside. This is why the kind of change that Jesus is talking about, internal change, to be prophetic people, to be genuine Christians, it's impossible. Because the kind of change that he is saying that we are to live out, that blesses the world, is a change that we have no control over. You see, when it comes to other kinds of changes that we try to do, right, maybe we try to lose some weight, maybe we try to acquire a new healthier habit, all that requires is a change of habit, a change of outward behavior. But the kind of change that Jesus is talking about requires a change in nature. Do you guys understand that? The kind of change that Jesus is speaking about in, tor- in terms of being prophetic, in terms of being genuine followers of Christ, is not simply the change of external behaviors or habits. It's a change of internal nature. And here's the question. How can you change your nature? Most of us in here are of the Asian variety. If you're not Asian today, welcome. We love you. Thank you for joining us. You're one of us. <laughs> I mean that as as fellow Christians, not as fellow Asians, right? How can you say, I'm not Asian, when clearly you are? How can you say, oh, I'm not white, when you are white? You can't do that. When it comes to nature, we are who we are, and we have no power to change it. Even the prophet Jeremiah said so when he says this in Jeremiah chapter 13, starting in verse 23, he says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. If you tie to what Jesus is saying with this passage, you know what he's saying? It doesn't matter 
if you try to have good fruit, if you are a bad tree, you are a bad tree. If you are a good tree, then you'll bear good fruit. If you're a bad tree, it doesn't matter how much fruit stapling you do, how much behavioral change you try to elicit. You are what you are because that is your nature. You are a sinner. The kind of change that Jesus calls his people to be, the change to be a prophet, is impossible. So the question is, how in the world then can we have this change if we can't do it on our own? And this leads me to my final point, how to make this change happen. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Moses was the greatest Old Testament prophet ever. Ever. That's, that's pretty amazing. Moses is the greatest Old Testament prophet ever. And in fact, Jesus seems to verify this when he says throughout the Gospels, Moses and the prophets said this. Moses and the prophets said that. Every time Jesus speaks of the prophets in the Gospels, he always distinguishes Moses out of the bunch. Clearly, Jesus himself is saying Moses is the greatest of all prophets in the dispensation of the Old Testament times, right? And so here we come to the question, well, if God calls us to change to be prophetic people as the best change possible for yourself and for the world, and it's impossible, and Moses is the greatest prophet of all, maybe we can look into the life of Moses and what he went through in his life as a prophet to give us a hint to the clue or excuse me, the answer to the clue of how can we have this change when we ourselves can't do it. And sure enough, I think we find the answer. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 16. We read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. I will come down, (coughs) excuse me, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Here's what's going on. During the time of the Exodus, which is about a couple million people, Moses was the only prophet amongst those millions. Needless to say, he was, a, he was like an ancient New Yorker. He was overworked, right? He definitely could not handle the pressures of it, and so he needed help. And so God says, okay, you're the sole prophet for these millions of people. What I'll do is I'll bring more prophets amongst you. Take all the elders, come to the foot of the mountain, and what does he say? I will take some of the spirit, and notice it's capitalized with an S, that's upon you, and I'll put it upon the rest of them so that they too can carry the responsibility of the work of the prophet amongst you. Who is this spirit? We all know who it is. Commentators are unanimous. It's the Holy Spirit. The way you change in a manner that's impossible for you to elicit is through the Holy Spirit coming into your life and bringing change that you cannot do yourself. It is the Spirit of God, Jesus' Spirit, that enables you to become prophetic people. If you read every prophet that gets commissioned in the Old Testament, always, always, before that happens, they are anointed, which means the Spirit of God descends upon them and they start prophesying, right? The spirit, the spirit, the spirit is how you have this transformation. So now the question is, how do we have the spirit upon us? How can we get the spirit of God upon us to where we can change so that we can become prophetic people? Jesus tells us in John 16, starting in the fifth verse, we read, But now I, Jesus, am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the counselor, the spirit of God won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, the only way the Spirit of God is going to come upon you is if I go to the Father on your behalf. And the disciples are depressed about that. They start grieving. They're sorrowful. Why? Because they know exactly what he is saying. For Jesus to say, I have to go back to the Father, that's simply Jesus' way of saying, I have to go to the cross. I have to suffer and die a sinner's death. I have to be the sin bearer. I have to be the substitute bearer. The substitute savior for you, for the whole world. It is only through the cross that Jesus is able to send the advocate. It is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that he's able to go back to the Father and give to us what we cannot give to ourselves, to where he can elicit the change that we cannot elicit on our own. Jesus has to go to the cross so that ultimately he could go back to heaven and send the Spirit of God down upon you so that you could change. What does that mean? It simply means this. You have to have Jesus die on the cross for you as your substitute Savior. You have to believe the gospel. If you want to elicit change, it doesn't come by effort. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by activity. It comes by faith. It comes by believing. It comes by recognizing your impotence and fully depending on another. That's what faith assumes. Faith means I don't depend on myself. I depend on someone else to do what I cannot do. And that is what Jesus is saying. Faith in the gospel. Belief in the gospel, which means if you have no faith in the gospel, if you do not believe in the gospel, if you do not deepen your faith in the gospel, if you do not further your understanding of your belief in the gospel, you will never change, at least not the kind of change that Jesus says is good for you and good for the world. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you believe all the sub-beliefs that make up your belief in the gospel? Such as, do you believe that God is the most precious thing than any other person, than any other situation in your life right now or ever will be? Do you believe that you are a sinner separated from God and that you cannot save yourself? Do you really believe that Jesus came into the world to be your sin bearer so that he could pay the full penalty, thereby giving you everlasting life, restored fellowship with God, so that you could have God himself? Do you believe that God loved you even when you hated him the most? Do you believe that? Many of us grew up in the church. Many of us grew up in this church. And you think just because you are attached to this church or the church you grew up in, that you believe? Because you read your Bible? Because you come out for morning prayer? Because you go to missions? Because you serve the poor? What kind of change is real to where it will not only bless you, but bless those around you? The change that does that is the change of the Holy Spirit. The change where he takes sinners and makes them saints. Deceivers into truth tellers. False prophets to true prophets. Here's my question, NCF. Are you living out your call as a prophet of God? Do you believe the gospel? 
I hope you can really take an honest look at yourself and say, how do you know that you really have right standing with God? How do you know that you truly changed? Are you looking to yourself and the long list of things that you've done for God? Or do you look at the cross and look at the singular act of God's work that you could never do on your own? What is your source of change? What is the assurance of hope that you have that you truly changed and now you're able to bless the world? My prayer as we move forward in this life together, so long as God allows us to stay together, is that we would be a people that not only does all these things, godly, relationally competent, hourly wise, and all that so forth, but that these would be aspects of what our main call is. We are called to be the prophet, priests, and kings of the world. Are you that royal priesthood? Are you living out that call? Are you all prophets of God? Are you pastors of this world? Let's pray. Father, as we think more about what it means to be your people and what it means for change and transformation, God, I hope and ask that you would open our eyes so that we would not simply settle for superficial change, that we would not fixate on just the exteriors, and that we would not just look upon change as a way to gratify our own ego or to use it as a way to look down on other people, but that we would chase after the kind of change that we cannot do ourselves, a change that would humble us, a change that would cause us to depend on you, a change that would be a source of real blessing so that we could serve the people around us. Father, many of us boast in the ways in which we can be our own self-made person. But Lord, we know that is antithetical to the kind of person you've called us to be. You don't call us to be self-made people. You call us to be spirit-made people. And so, Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit upon us so that we could continue to be like him, that we would continue to be prophetic, and that we would continue in our growth of being a blessing to the world. Father, may the saints of NCF not have a mindset of change from the outside in to where we resort to fruit stapling, but instead we would always be people who depend on you to change us from the inside out. Oh God, would you hear us now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offerings. If you're here today visiting us, we don't expect you to give, but if you are a member of this church, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.